So the question that I got was this. Um, who's got the microphone? Anybody passing around mics? You, you standing in proxy for your husband? Where is he? Anyway. Arizona. Okay. The question was this. I said very clearly from the pulpit that Paul says no one seeks God. But what about those passages in the Bible? If you seek me with all your heart, you will surely find me. Great question. Um, just, hello? Would you just turn me down or off? Off. Oh, okay. There we go. Okay. Um, Jason's making his presence known. Okay. So start off by going to me to Romans 3. I didn't actually cite Paul um, or quote Paul. Well, I referenced that Paul said, look, the author of Hebrews introduces a quote saying it is written somewhere. So I'm, I'm, I feel I'm in okay. I think Paul says in Romans 3, no one seeks for God. And, and I'll give you the short answer then the longer. The short answer is this. In our natural state, apart from God's grace, we will not and do not seek God. So Romans 3 is man before Paul's, but now here's what God's doing in the gospel. Um, and so let me, let me establish that first and then deal with those passages that do talk about God calling on us to seek him. So Paul is... is closing his, um, the prosecution's case against man. He has shut every door of escape, every possible avenue that someone could argue for why they aren't guilty before God's court. Um, in fact, we're, we're in the closing sort of soliloquy. He, he stitches together a long series of quotations from the Psalms, and starting in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands no one seeks for God. There's the phrase I was quoting. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then here comes the conclusion. Now I know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then the very next phrase, but now, here's what God's doing in the gospel. So in our natural state, apart from God's grace, God's enabling and God's help, I believe no one seeks for God. That Paul starts Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Far be it from seeking God, we are intentionally avoiding him and the knowledge of him. That's, I believe, the natural state of man. Now, God's grace goes out and seeks, and God works in hearts, and so we're told in John 14, 15, and 16, that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so the end effect is that there are people who seek for God, but only in response to God's beginning work in their heart. So their seeking is not fundamental. It's, it's derivative. It's secondary. It's in response to something. So the, the passages that rightly do talk about seeking God would be Deuteronomy 4. Turn there. And in Deuteronomy 4, 
verse 29. Actually, go back before verse 29. One of the things that is fascinating as I've been rereading Deuteronomy is Moses is fully aware that the law is not going to get the job done, that the law is not going to bring him home, and how things are going to end. And so as early as Deuteronomy 4, verse 25, when your father, when you father children and children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, which is exactly what he did. First with Shalmaneser to the ten tribes, and then through Nebuchadnezzar to the two tribes. And you will be left few in number among the nations that the Lord your God will drive you. There you will serve gods of wood, stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there... You will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart, with all your soul. There is seeking. Now go to Deuteronomy 31. How is that going to happen? How is it going to transpire that Israel scattered among the nations? Deuteronomy 30, not 31, sorry. Deuteronomy 30. Okay. So 29 is a reiteration of the blessings and the curse, the threats and the promises um, laid out clear as day. And chapter 30 begins this. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, you call them to mind among all the nations the Lord your God has driven you. See, Moses predicts <laughs> you guys are going to fail and God's going to scatter you. When that happens, which is picking up where we were in chapter 4, same thing. And you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from the people so the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. How is all that going to happen? The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God. Israel's very love for God that will cause them to do all this is not fundamentally theirs. It's God's work in their heart that causes them to love God. So that, that's, that's my sort of answer. Absolutely, people seek God, but never on their own initiative, never because of their goodness and their worth. So even in one sense, I guess what I'd say is even when you see people seeking God, it's only evidence of the God who's already seeking them. So that when somebody, like the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? God's already working in his heart. God has already been seeking him. And that is an evidence that God has already been at work in his heart. Um, the same thing we see in go to Acts 16 with Lydia, um, who Linda is a fan of. Right? 
Linda always wears. Okay, Linda always wears purple, and Lydia was a seller of purple. So, um, oh, you're the buyer. She's the buyer. She does business with Lydia. There we go. Okay. Um, Acts 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who is a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And so she absolutely responds in faith to the gospel. But we are told before God did a work in her heart. So there's a work of God in her heart that enables her, causes her to pay attention and respond. So even as people seek God, it's only in response to God seeking them. That, that's, that's what I was getting at. Excellent question. Excellent question. So anyone want to go further with that or different questions? Or you tell me. Or do you want awkward silence? We can do that too. Can you say what the initial question was? I actually didn't hear it. The initial question was, you said no one seeks for God. That God is the seeker. But what about those passages where God says, hey, if and when you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. In fact, I had, you know what I had ringing in my ears, don't you, Mom? What was it? Mendelssohn's Elijah. Yeah. yeah. One of my mom's favorite pieces of music that she gave me was uh, Mendelssohn's Elijah. And he put that, if you people seek me with all your heart, you will find, surely find me. You will surely find me. Anyway, that, let's say it. No, no, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Um, apparently, I only caught about half of the, um, the Nicodemuses. Um, a number of you have been kind enough to inform me of that. Um, the Lord humbles the proud. Apparently, I needed some humbling. That's okay. Uh, but questions on that or questions from this morning with Zacchaeus. Oh, Renee Lucia needs a microphone. It was the uh, passage where Zacchaeus says, if yeah. I have, and it was an admission of guilt on his part. Yeah. What if there's a one-to-one -one person who comes to you and says, if I wronged you, when they know very well they have? Well, okay. So in grammar, there are different moods of verbs, and one of them, the verb of possibility, is called the subjunctive, if, perhaps I. And a lot of times people will use subjunctive apologies, which aren't apologies at all. If I said something that bothered you, or if I was rude, I apologize. To which, because I'm slightly snarky, I will say, there's no rush, take your time, figure it out. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Like, like okay, biblically, right, forgiveness is asked for and it's extended. It, it's interactional. It's um, transactional. That's the term. So you say, hey, look, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And then you say, yes, I will forgive you. And then everything's restored. If you're saying, I'm not even sure I did anything. But if I did something, I, you can't repent of things you think you might have done. Can you? God doesn't forgive us of sins we think we might have done, right? 
Um, if I, God, if I disobeyed any of your commandments, I'm sorry. That's not going to cut it. So uh, oftentimes what people mean, it all depends what people mean. If, if people, the problem is our, our word apologize gets used so poorly. And there's a sense in which, sure, I'm, where I will say to someone, hey, I, I, it, I'll say I'm sorry, you were offended. And all I mean to say is I don't think what I said was wrong. I took no pleasure in the offense. It wasn't intentional. And so I want to let you know I am grieved that you were grieved, right? And sometimes that's all you mean, and that's fine. That's a good thing to say. If I, if I say something in a way that somehow you know, rings wrong in your ear, you didn't like it, or it reminds you of something you don't like, whatever, I go, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry that you were upset by that. I didn't mean to do that. Now, I'm by no means confessing sin and asking for forgiveness. I'm, I'm making it clear I wasn't trying to be a jerk, right? The problem is we use the exact same words for that that we do for, I was wrong. Please forgive me, right? And the only times I'll pull the snarky thing is, is if, if I really don't know what the person's saying, or I'll just, or, or maybe I'll say something like, well, what do you, what do you want from me? Do you, do you want, because have you ever done this? Someone says, hey, I'm sorry about that. And you say, it's okay, I forgive you. And they look at you funny. It's clear they weren't thinking that they were confessing anything wrong, right? So, so please, 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 please don't ever do subjunctive apologies. They're, they're awful. They reflect nothing of the character of God. And thankfully, God doesn't offer a subjunctive salvation. If, right? <laughs> Pretty sure you're going to want the pronouncement of justice and forgiveness to not be in the subjunctive, but to be in the, in, to be in the indicative. It has happened, right? Jesus didn't say it might be finished. It, it is finished. Um, so it's, 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 it's just a... Sadly, God's people should be the most free and familiar with transactional forgiveness, where we name what I mean, we do this with my kids, right? You got to name what you did. What did you do that was wrong? I, I did not, you know, mommy, I, I didn't obey you, or I, I was yelling, or I, you know, said no. That was wrong. Will you forgive me? Well, of course I'll forgive you. You know, do that. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's weird. You'll You'll deal with people and get these subjunctive apologies that are worthless. I mean, sometimes they're even more. I'm sorry if you were offended. We're, we're really, it's my fault now. You know, <laughs> like I, I'm easily offended. <clears throat> you know, and so sometimes when people say that, it, it even actually is back, backhandedly insulting them. Um, so just we should be clear with what we're saying, and we should feel free to ask what you mean by that. I mean, it's it's fine to say I took no pleasure in the, your displeasure. That was unintentional, and I'm actually saddened about that, you know? Um, but it should be clear when we're seeking forgiveness that we're doing that. Um, in fact, go to Joshua chapter, um, Joshua 6, I want to say. Probably the best single confession of sin I'm aware of is in Joshua. Um, it's... Just every piece of it's there. And I'll use this a lot in counseling. This is, here's a good model for confession. Um, no, it's seven. Joshua seven. And we're dealing with Achan, who uh, Achan stole a bar of silver, even though God had declared that all of the spoils of Jericho were his to be devoted to destruction, to be burned. Achan saw some stuff he liked, and he coveted it, and he took it, and he hid it. And the next time Israel went and fought, God wasn't with them, and the, they, they lost to a much 
lesser number, and Joshua knows something's up, and he throws a little pity party, and the captain of the Lord's army says, stop it. I love it. Joshua's like, whose side are you, for us or against us? I'm on God's side. And so he straightens him out. So Joshua comes back. He lines up the tribes, singles out the tribe of Judah, singles out the family. Um, and then verse 19, Joshua said to Achan, my son, by the way, proper confession of sin gives God glory. This is remarkable. It's worship. Proper confession of sin is an act of worship. My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done and do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them. Notice he deals with the heart motivation. What's really the sin? Coveting. So I saw them. That's what happened. In my heart, coveting rose up. I took them and see they're hidden in the earth inside my tent and with the silver underneath. That's spot on. Um, and so like in my marriage, I don't always confess that fully, but my wife knows and I know that if ever there's any doubt, you can stop and ask, could, could you unpack that a little bit? You know, so say I say something rude to Serena. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry I was short with you. And, and if she understands what I mean, we're good, but she's free, and sometimes she does. Uh, short with me, huh? Could you, could you put that biblically? Fair enough. I wanted what I wanted more than I wanted to be your husband and protect you, so I made war with you with my words. I fought you. Um, this is the categories of James 4. What causes quarrels and conflicts among you? It's your desires that wage war within you. I wanted something, so you became the enemy. I fought you with my tongue, with my words, like sharp swords. And I, I, I was wrong. That was sinful. I spoke to you harshly. I spoke to you um, in an unkind way. Will you please forgive me? Oh, sure. Okay, cool. And she knows that if she, she ever is, you know, because sometimes when someone says, yeah, I'm sorry, I was snippy. Is snippy a sin? I don't know. Yeah. And so it's there. So it's not like every single time Serena and I deal with sin, there's this like, you know, program we got to move through. But either one of us, if there's ever any doubt, we're not sure the other person's taking it seriously, hey, could, could you unpack that and say that more biblically and fully? Yeah, okay, sure. And it's good to be able to do that. Um, Carol in the back, microphone. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. The, the six loyal listeners want a mic, and they keep telling me they're thankful that I hold up for this. So Okay, now, yeah. I, I brought this up, but Mrs. Brewer and I were just uh, talking about whether uh, being uh, snarky is a sin. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 being snarky is a sin. Um, it all depends. Snarky. Um, <laughs> Not observing social protocol, being willing to be slightly, uh, slightly odd or, or to make something bring a matter to a head. In that case, that's what I mean by it. In the right place at the right time. I usually wait till it's somebody I know before I'd say, take your time or something. I mean, and, and if I, it's all how you say it. If you could be a, you could, you could say it like a punch to the face. Hey, I'm sorry for any, yeah, why don't you take your time? There's no rush. I mean, that'd be rude. If you said like, look, I... <laughs> Think it through. If you think you did something wrong, I'll be happy to forgive you. There's no rush. Take your time. Work it out. Like if I said it like that, that's different. So um, I use snarky as a, as a category, umbrella category for that. Um, 
But no, the way the way you just said it, that's not snarky. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the the first way you 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 did it, I thought maybe there was a a a time and a place where you should actually say that to somebody. You know, think about it. I don't know. It'd be hard to think. No, it'd be hard to think of the time and the place to say that to somebody. I mean, you do get some sharp words in the Bible, and part of it is wisdom to know where that is. I'm not off the top of my head thinking of a good context where that would seem like the appropriate thing. Um, you know, I mean, Paul Paul gets out there on a couple occasions, but yeah, it's probably less often than we think <laughs> appropriate. Um, fair enough. A call to my snarkiness. Excellent. Excellent. No, no, no. And by the way, just dealing with sin and dealing with interpersonal issues, one of the first things you got to do is take your issues and put them in biblical dress. Because... Because precisely, what does Jeremy mean by snarky? Does he mean slightly rascally? Does he mean slightly rude or odd? Does he mean harsh? Does he mean sarcastic? Um, Does he mean hateful? Does he mean impatient? Well, those are terms the Bible speaks to, snarky. It's kind of like, you know, I, I didn't lose my temper, I got irritated. I'm pretty sure we mean by irritation low levels of anger, right? I mean, that's irritation just is a low level of anger. Not a consuming passion that you're out of control, but it's a low level of anger. Okay, that's, that's irritation, okay. Um, go to James 4. This is, this is shown wonderfully in James 4. James is so practical. Verse 1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? To which, if we're not careful, and most people I talk to, and I'll do this sometimes too, it's them, it's that person, it's that person. They make me mad. I'm a, I'm a nice person normally, but Renee or Greg or whoever, they just get under my skin, they make me you know, Poor Jeremy's, you know, the victim here because they make me mad. That's not what James says. Where quarrels and conflicts come from, I want something. I got to have something. And maybe what I want is even good, right? You know, the, the husband who wants respect from his wife, the, uh, the, the employee who wants a reasonable boss, whatever. It doesn't have to be bad things you want. But you want it. And eventually you want it enough, I'll fight you for it. That's where quarrels and conflicts come from. Where do quarrels and conflicts, fights and rise? Okay, what causes quarrels and fights? So notice how the first time James calls it, he speaks of his quarrels and fights. Okay, he's going to refer to it a little differently in the next sentence. Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. So we went from quarrels, fights, to war and murder. Because, as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, to be angry at your brother is a heart of murder, right? So if I'm, if I'm angry with my wife and I'm fighting with her, what's in my heart? Murder, right? Just like if you look on someone with lust, what's in your heart? Adultery, okay? And James is starting where we start. It's just a quarrel, a little fight. Yeah, it was war and it was murder, okay? Good. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. That's, that's the source of, of our, make, make no mistake, if, 
if you're in a relationship, a situation, and there's anger present, somebody wants something. Somebody is demanding something. Make no mistake, that's always what's going on. And so that's part of when you're dealing with conflict and you're dealing with anger, you're not really dealing with it to acknowledge what it is you were fighting for, what you wanted, you know? Um, let, let's say, let's use an example. Let's say I feel Serena has been disrespectful or dishonored me in front of my kids. Let's just say that happens, okay? That's not a very likely scenario, but let's say that happens. Is it wrong to not want that to happen? No. An appropriate response might be dismay, and it might entirely be appropriate for me to correct her, talk to her, ask her, what, what were you doing? What were you thinking? At some other point when the kids aren't present. But if I decide I must have honor in front of my kids, I will not tolerate dishonor in front of my children, and I now begin to fight with her with my words, that's what's going on. I am making war with her in front of our children. And you want to unpack what's going on there. I, I, even though I chose to protect, honor, and cherish you, and, and so when you're, che- when you're cherishing and honoring and protecting someone, what do you do when they, when they act shamefully? You try to cover and protect it, like Noah's sons who walked in backwards with a blanket and covered his nakedness. So even if Serena did something embarrassing or shameful, she's totally wrong. Let's just say that for a moment. Even if that's the case, in front of my kids, I should be protecting that, covering that up, maybe distracting them from it, right? That's what someone who's a protector and a cherisher would do, should do. That's my what I covenant, what I promised to do. But because I wanted what I wanted in that moment, I, I say something rude to her, and I'm warring with her, and, and it's just because I want something. I will, you, you will treat me with respect, and I'll show you, and I'll show my kids what happens to those people who don't do what I want them to do, Okay? I'm worshiping at the altar of honor and respect. I remember uh, Carrie Hardy. I, when I first met Carol, I was always messing up because MacArthur's uh, as, associate pastor um, was Carrie Hardy, and uh, he was a biblical counseling guy, and he, he talked about how the next time you get in a fight with your spouse over you know, getting your own way or whatever, he goes, what you really should do is stop, say, hold on, be right back, go out, fashion a golden idol of yourself, set it up in the living room, bow down to it three or four times first, and then go and pick it back up. Because in your heart, that's what you're doing, right? Because what am I saying? What's, more, what's worth serving? Because biblically, Jeremy is better for Jeremy to be dishonored and mistreated and to keep his covenant promises, to protect his wife. That's more like Jesus, right? I'm willing to suffer reproach. We're not talking about some big deal here. No, Jeremy, unlike Jesus, Jesus didn't account equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. I'm going to clutch my rights. And the one I was sworn to protect will become my enemy. I'll fight them and I'll pour out my wrath on them because I'm a sovereign and I'm a king and I have a wrath and you better watch out. I'll show you. Um, <laughs> it's, it's evil. You know, and so if Serena's not sure that I'm getting all that, by all means, can you, can you unpack that? If a minute or two later, hey, sorry I snippy with you in front of the kids. Now, if she's confident I mean all that, she'll, she'll let me pass with that. But, there's, you know, periodically, yeah, could you, could you say that a bit more biblically? Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and sometimes I'll find actually I was treating it lightly. Oh, wow, that's way, because what happens when you say it like that is, you, yeah, that's pretty ugly. It's pretty wicked. I mean, there's, there's something good about speaking biblically because, you know, I'm not cut to my heart about 
being snippy in front of the kids. When I start talking about, I made war against you to protect my honor in front of the children. They watched me fight you. Yeah, that's, that's pretty ugly, right? So anyway, that's it's a tangent off a tangent, but I, I can't stress enough the importance of, of the word confess in English and in Greek shares the exact same etymology, origin. It's a compound word. Con in English means with, fest to speak. In Greek, it's homo legomen, to say the same. And so we are not confessing sin until we are saying what God says about it. So the challenge with confession is, will I agree with God and what he says about it? So here's what James says is going on. Will I agree with that, or do I have a different interpretation? You know, Serena, I just, I've had a rough day, and I didn't get much sleep last night, and I didn't appreciate that we were talking. That's not what James says is going on. I'm not confessing anything. I'm not speaking with anyone. I'm not agreeing with anyone. No, until I'm willing to say what God says, I haven't confessed Jack. That's, that's part of the challenge, is will I agree with what God says? Because we generally minimize our sin. Um, we generally want to make excuses for our sin. And so, yeah, that's, that. anyway, we're off on a long tangent on confession, but anyway, there's a lot more that can be said, but I'll, I'll stop there before I go on for the rest of our time. Other questions or thoughts? Carol, you got all that from Snarky, so... Anything else? Lois, sweet. Um, I just am drawing a blank in the verse that it says that Zacchaeus, um, as a son of Abraham, Zacchaeus has access to God's promises. Yes. Were there non-Jews that were coming to the Lord? Before the the vision that it was to be taken to the Jewish or non-Jews, there's some. We saw the centurion who almost certainly was Roman. Um, we're not, you know, he loves our people. That means he's not Jewish. So there's the centurion whose faith Jesus marveled at. But what wasn't clear was that the Gentile and, the, and the, the the mystery of the new covenant is the Gentiles could come. The Gentiles could always come and become Jewish become proselytes. They could enter into, they become what they call God-fearers. They could get circumcised. They're either temple, Solomon's temple had, a, had, a, had a, a place for the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles, and the court of women and children and the court of men. And so it, implicit in the law was that the, the nations could come, but they could come and enter into Judaism. So Rahab eventually, you know, after the third or fourth generation, she's Jewish and her kids are Jewish. The, the mystery of the new covenant is the Gentiles, apart from circumcision and apart from Moses and apart from the law, have equal access to the promises of God. So at this point, um, Jesus is simply declaring, I think, most immediately, this guy's Jewish. What keeps him from the Messiah if he will not, if he'll turn in repentance and faith? What, what, what blocks him? Because he wouldn't be allowed in the temple. I mean, from what we understand of the Jews and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, he's a sinner, he's unclean, he's working with the uncircumcised Gentiles. He's, he, would be, he, would, he wouldn't be allowed. To, I mean, I was listening to MacArthur earlier this week. He suggested, and he's probably right, that part of the reason the, 
the, the, in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector stands far off probably because he couldn't get very close. And he pleads with God, literally have mercy, be propitious. He's not allowed to offer sacrifices. No, no self-respecting priest is going to let this guy come in. So his only recourse is God, may some sacrifice that you accept be credited to me. Um, so there are examples of um, Gentiles, the, uh, the Syrophoenician, even the, even the demoniac over in the Gerizines when Jesus crossed over, and those are strange occurrences, but it does not become clear and evident until we get into Acts and the, the, really the vision coming down of the, of the sheet and Paul being commissioned as the, the uh, apostle of the Gentiles. So, and even, even as Gentiles are welcome in Jesus' ministry, he recognizes a priority to Israel so that when the, uh, the woman comes and, and he says, she's a Gentile, he says, it's not good to give the children's food to the dogs. Yes, but even the dogs get to eat the table scraps. And he, she's persistent, she's plucky, and Jesus says, okay. Okay, you know, um, so I, I think that's what's going on there is that Jesus is recognizing that as despised as Zacchaeus would be, still a son of Abraham, still a Jew. And I think it's not as clear, but for those of us who've read the New Testament, and especially Galatians, where Paul says, look, anyone who has the faith of Abraham is a son of Abraham. In one sense, this tax collector is a truer Israelite than the crowd around him, who's I mean, it's, it's not good when the crowd is saying the same thing the Pharisees said three chapters early. That's not a good sign. You know what I mean? When it's, it's not a good development for this crowd of people that they are now bringing the same charge against Jesus the Pharisees did back in 15. That, I think that helps us explain some of the movement to the cross. So that's not a good thing at all. Because up until 19, only the Pharisees have made that complaint. They make it in Luke 5, they make it in Luke 15. Now everyone's making it. But um, that's, does that answer your question or am I just rambling? A little bit of both, she says, okay. Um, okay, 10 minutes. Other questions? Awkward silence it is. Oh, Naomi. Could you actually talk more about confession and ramble on about that? Sure, absolutely. Go to 1 John 1. Eight and nine. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So here, a pattern of confession, and the Greek is a present active word. So if we are habitually, if we continue to confess our sins as we see them, then Jesus is faithful to continually cleanse us, just like that foot washing he gave Peter and the disciples. So here's, I think, a way to think through the steps that take place in sin all the way to confession. So you're going along, you're walking in the light, we're using the language of 1 John, and your heart pitches 
some sales pitch to you, just like the serpent in the garden. Use back to my example of, uh, you know, say my wife disrespects me in front of my kids, dishonors me in some way that I don't like. You shouldn't put up with that. You of all people, you know, your heart says something like that. Um, and I go, my will says, why, yeah. Yeah, you, if you don't do something, you just going to keep doing that. You got to teach her not to do that. Yeah. And what happens is I believe a lie at that point, right? Um, the lie would be something like, um, you need to fight for your rights, you need to defend yourself, you need to um, teach and make someone else pay, because vengeance is mine, and I will repay. Those are the lies I'm believing, right? Um, just like the serpent in the garden, you know, you won't die. Whatever the lies, you believe a lie, and then you act upon that belief. That's one of the reasons why I've stressed over and over and over that sin is lived out on belief, that in the moment of sin, we're believing a lie. Whatever that lie may be, I'm believing a lie. And I act on that lie. And I act with confidence. The fruit of my faith in this lie is the words that come out of my mouth. And so then I get convicted. And now I see alongside the lie the truth. And the choice is, which will my will embrace? And so you meet people, and they're dead wrong, and they'll still defend themselves. You'll show them in the Bible, and they're dead wrong, and they'll still defend themselves because, gosh darn it, you know, they're not going to put up with this. They don't deserve this, whatever. And, okay, you're still believing a lie. You're still confessing a lie. And so confession presupposes repentance. My will was believing this lie. My will was acting upon this lie. My will was putting this lie into practice. Now I've rejected that, I've embraced the truth, and only now can I confess with my mouth the truth and agree with God. Confession can't be done until you've shifted from believing and serving this lie to believing and serving the truth. So you have to repent first, which is simply a change of mind, a change of thinking. I was thinking this is the way to go, and now I think this is the way to go. I was thinking defending myself and teaching my wife was appropriate. Now I think loving her, cherishing her, protecting her is. And now, only now, am I able to agree with God about what he says. What does God say about what I did? What does God say about what I should have done? What does God say about what I should do now? And I can confess and agree with God. It's one of the reasons why if you struggle with a particular sin, go study what the Bible says about it. If you struggle with anger, if you struggle with language, what you're going to find in short order is God has a whole lot of stuff for you to agree with. And that's going to help because you're going to be challenged by some of the things God says. Do I really agree with that? Better to meet a fool in his folly than a man who is wise in his own eyes. There's more hope for a fool than for him. Do I agree with that? Work yourself through Proverbs. See if you can agree with those things. And it, it's rough. And so, yeah, if you're finding some issue of sin sticking with you, go make a search of all that God has said about it. And I challenge you, try to go confess that. Try to agree with that. Try to say amen to that about yourself. It, it'll bring the conviction on. You don't always need to do that. Sometimes I can just see, yeah, that was unkind and hurtful. I shouldn't do that. Other times I need God's word to pierce and cut and wound me more thoroughly because I know I shouldn't, but I don't, still don't really care. 
you know? I still don't really care. So if I have enough grace at that moment to realize that's a very dangerous place to be, to know it's right but not to care, then it's like, okay, I need to go read the word, I need to go pray, because I need to care. And, and part of that is seeing what God has to say. So a lot of what I'll do in counseling when I'm dealing with someone with some sin or struggle is let's do a study of anger, lust, the tongue, whatever, because you need all... God hasn't just said one verse on each topic. He's given us pictures, metaphors, poetry, psalms. He's given us all these genres of literature, different ways of coming at it, so that when you next are tempted by that, there's a ton of texts that can come to bear to your mind. Remember, Jeremy, you're about to make war with your wife. Wow, okay. So, so yeah, that, that's one of the reasons we want to hide God's word in our heart because we want to, um, if you still think you're dealing with, I was just, it was just a spat. What causes conflicts? Just a little conflict. You know, we had a little spat. You know, you're not going to, be broken over your knees about that. You start to unpack it and spell it out. And sometimes it takes help to do that. You know, like here's what I did. Help me, help me put that biblically. How would you, how would you speak of that as? What would you call that? Um, you know, and it starts to get humbling real fast. I, I worshipped and served myself. I, I made an idol out of my honor. I was consumed with my glory and my honor, and my wrath was poured out on my foes who wouldn't give me the honor and glory that I deserve. Yeah, that's what was going on. Okay. <laughs> now, if you can harden your heart to that, God help you. But th that's going to be a whole lot more convicting than, yeah, I, I, I spoke a little hastily, just a little snippy, snarky even, you know. Uh, now, you don't always have to do that, but if you find your heart not being convicted, or, if, or better yet, if you're not changing, if you find yourself confessing the same sin over and over and over again, one of the most helpful things you can do is do a study of what God has to say about it with a view to, let's compare what God has to say about it and what I've been saying about it, and then see what, how good your confession lines up. Does that, that seem make any sense? That, that's one of the reasons. You know, sometimes people go, I got a problem with my tongue. Why are we doing a Bible study? Because God's got a lot of stuff to say about that that you need to know and you need to be prepared to agree with. Yeah? Anyway, our time is up. Thank you all very much. See you all next week. God bless.